birds make nests, beavers build dams, humans create culture. Mm. Uh, and we create culture that is in our image. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley. Today in our Christ and Culture conversation, Dr. Benjamin Quinn and I will answer the question, what is culture anyway? And after that, Dr. Mark Lederbach will tell us what's on his bookshelf. But first, let's begin with our segment in the news. In recent weeks, news outlets have reported on archaeological evidence. And the article that I'm going to look at is an article uh, from Smithsonian Magazine. And the title of the article is this, Ancient Cities Destruction by Exploding Space Rock May Have Inspired Biblical Story of Sodom. You say, what? What is in the story? Well, around 1650 B.C., about 17 centuries before the time of Christ, uh, the city of Tal el-Hammam was wiped out by a blast. This blast was a thousand times more powerful than the atomic bomb used at Hiroshima. Uh, Now, scientists and archaeologists think that perhaps uh, this blast was caused by an exploding comet our meteor. And at the time of the disaster, Tal el Hammam was the largest of three major cities in the valley, and it likely acted as the region's political center. And together, the three cities boasted a population of more than 50,000 inhabitants. Over the years, archaeologists examining the structures of the city, the ruins have found evidence of a sudden high-temperature, destructive event. For instance, pottery pieces that were melted on the outside but untouched on the inside. Now, through the years, researchers concluded that warfare, fire, volcanic eruption, or an earthquake were all unlikely culprits, as these events couldn't have produced heat intense enough to cause the melting recorded at the scene. So, For scientists, that left a space rock as the most likely cause. And because experts have failed to find a crater at the site, they attributed the damage to an airburst created when a meteor or comet traveled through the atmosphere at high speed. It would have exploded about two and a half miles above the city in a blast 1,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb that exploded At Hiroshima, the temperatures rose rapidly above 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. As one explains, clothing and wood immediately burst into flames. Swords, spears, mud bricks, and pottery began to melt. Almost immediately, the city was on fire. None of the inhabitants of the city would have survived. Quote, their bodies were blown apart and their bones blasted into fragments, close quote. So researchers found melted metals, unusual mineral fragments among the city's ruins. And one of the discoveries is what they call shocked quartz. 
These are sand grains containing cracks that form only under high pressure. Archaeologists also discovered high concentrations of salt in the destruction layer of the site, probably from the blast impact on the Dead Sea or its shores. The explosion would have distributed the salt across a wide area, and one article it hints that nearby observers would have been encrusted immediately in salt. Well, all of this is very evocative. And so we have with us today Dr. Chip McDaniel, retired professor of Old Testament Hebrew here at Southeastern. Dr. McDaniel, thank you for being with us here today. Thank you, Ken. It's a pleasure. What are we to make of this article? Well, this article was uh, featured in the Smithsonian Magazine in September, and um, it's been picked up by several other sources. Christianity Today has done a piece on it. Newsweek, Science Times, even uh, Into, Into Magazine, all uh, building off of the information from, from this uh, by Livia Gershon in um, Smithsonian Magazine. But they're relying heavily on Nature Magazine uh, that was published um, a couple of days before that that uh, has a feature called Scientific Reports. And there they get into the really technical stuff. That's where they, they analyze this, uh, this grains of sand and these, these other uh, artifacts that they found. Uh, but this is not new. It's, it's news uh, because it's current, but it's not news. In January of 1930, the New York Times did a piece about an explosion that, uh, around the Dead Sea and speculated that it was the burning of Sodom. Now the question is, why is it emerging again. Yeah. Uh, well, the, one of the reasons is we have so much more technical material to work with. We've got better uh, spectrographs that can analyze things. We've got microscopes that can uh, see things much more clearly and, and make determinations on what's there. And so that's probably why this has reemerged as a, a news item. We know that such bursts do happen. We know that they're rare, but they do happen. They are rare. Yeah. Uh, in uh, 1908, we had in Siberia a very large burst that uh, leveled uh, just miles of forest. We also had in north central Syria, uh, apparently about 13,000 years ago, they figure, a blast that destroyed uh, cities. Uh, so the phenomenon is known, uh, but now we have instrumentation that can help us analyze it more thoroughly. The article uh, in Nature magazine will conclude by saying it was a big event. Anything that is a thousand times more powerful than Hiroshima is, by definition, a big event. Well, this would be a Barney Fife big, big, yeah. uh, Andy, yeah. event. And so the, uh, the question, however, is, is this uh, Sodom and Gomorrah being mm -hmm. destroyed? And the article in Nature magazine would be quick to say, concluded by saying, we don't know that this is Sodom, and so uh, one way or the other, we can't tell. There's, there's no sign at the entrance to the city saying, Welcome the, to Sodom. Welcome to Sodom. Yeah. Liars Club meets Tuesday mornings <laughs> at uh, 1130. But um, they do present a, a, an astonishing array of information. The question uh, becomes then, is, uh, what, are, what is our takeaway yeah. from this material? And... The attitude of 
of the evangelical world, scholars who have studied the archaeology and the biblical text, uh, pretty much comes down on the conclusion that this site in the just northeast of the north of the Dead Sea, probably 10 or 12 miles east of Jericho, is not the site that's being represented in the biblical text. And so the, it, it seems to be wrong in its position. It also seems to be wrong in its dating. Well, I was going to ask you that. Um, 1650 B.C., which, uh, you know, which we realize that in that type of dating there is a margin of error. How close, how far off would that be? It would seem like uh, Abraham would be more like uh, 2000 B.C., if I, if I understand correctly. Well, there's always a, a high, middle, and low chronology, mm-hmm. but even the low chronology wouldn't stretch enough to get um, to Abraham at this time, uh, 1650 B.C. I think that Eugene Merrill, in his very fine book on the kingdom, a kingdom of priests, uh, has done some good chronological work, and he would put the time of Abraham Uh, let's say, the birth of Isaac at about 2,000. If we can think of Isaac born at 2,000, Moses born just before 1,500, David begins ruling around uh, 10, 11 B.C. Uh, Those are are convenient uh, hooks to hang Mm -hmm. events upon. And this just is a little bit early to, uh, or a little bit late, uh, this 1650 is a little late to conform to the biblical text as, it, as we read it. The issue of the place is brought up because in uh, the book of Genesis, it records that um, Zoar was the place that, that Lot ran to. And Zoar traditionally has been held to be in the southern portion of the Dead Sea. Mm. And so we're talking maybe 25 miles, 30 miles south of this place. And so with respect to time and with respect to place, it is suspect. And uh, I think we need to look for a different explanation. Certainly something very big happened there at Hammam. But that it's to be correlated with the event of Sodom is, we would argue, not consistent with the biblical text. Now, this isn't a problem for secular researchers Mm -hmm. because they would say, well, the Bible doesn't give us events as they happened. The Bible was written at 600 B.C., 500 B.C., and it took, on, it took oral traditions from an earlier period. It fashioned them into a story that is fictional but spiritually edifying for them, and it was designed as a propaganda piece to unite the people of Israel to resist Persian, the Persian Empire and later the Greek Empire. And that it was a political piece, a propaganda piece, calling the people to worship a God based upon their common heritage from years ago. But none of these events ever happened. Well, of course, we're going to say Scripture is a communication from a God who is there, who has spoken to us, and wants to enter into a relationship with us. And we would assume that a God who values truth would speak truly about what happened. And so when we compare what we would regard to be the biblical account, the bi- biblical understanding, with this event, we would see that probably we're talking about two different events. And we, we, there would be no way to reconcile these two. Now, is, is this an event that did take place? Well, there's absolutely. But is it an event to be linked to the story in the book of Genesis? We would argue no.
So to take a step further for what you're saying, many times Christians look to archaeology as somehow a means to verify uh, the Bible. And, and we certainly expect, since the Bible's presenting us the truth, we expect the empirical evidence to sort of corroborate that. But it's always a danger to start with the archaeology first and then expect it to provide us the basis for trusting Scripture. Uh, can you speak to that, that approach? Yeah. What uh, the archaeologist spade gives us one day, it can take away the next. And so if we're, if we're doing a dig and we, we interpret something and we say, yes, this proves Scripture, and then we see right next to it or in a, a similar strata somewhere else, stratum somewhere else that there's contradictory evidence, then people would say, oh, see, you said this proved it. Now this disproves it. We would expect there to be a harmony between what we dig out of the ground and what is recorded in Scripture. But we need to recognize, first of all, that some of this material in Scripture is ambiguous as far as exact identification. Do we really know where Sodom was? Mm -hmm. We can think that it was near Zoar. We think we know where Zoar was, but and it's not uh, where Hammam is. But do we really know for sure? Well, we have to be a little guarded in making a pronouncement. The same would be true when we think in terms of the archaeology. Of everything, uh, of all of the little mounds in the ancient world, only a fraction have been identified and, and any kind of digging at all. And of those that have been identified, just a fraction have been dug. And of those, just a fraction has been dug in a way that is uh, comprehensive and is careful. And so we have a situation where we've got a little bit of a little bit of a little bit and we're expecting that to reveal a great deal of information so for us. So it's a rather risky thing to extrapolate from a very small sample. That's correct, yes. Yeah. I would want to say that for questions of chronology, I like uh, Eugene Merrill's mm -hmm. A Kingdom of Priests. I think he's done a good job. And also the, with questions of archaeology and how the Scripture fits into our understanding currently of the pictures of the various times in Israel's history, I like Ken Kitchen's On the Reliability of the Old Testament. I was going to ask you about that, if, what you thought of Kitchen's book. So I think it's very good, very okay. fine. He's, he's a careful scholar. Mm -hmm. he, he is not afraid to contradict conventional wisdom. But we need to keep in mind that people who do what I do, and that uh, teaching Old Testament in secular universities, most of the people that do what I do don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Yeah. And yeah. they, that it's a communication, a truthful communication by a God who wants to be in relationship with his creation. And so they're going, to, they're going to look at the evidence with different glasses. All of us have presuppositional lenses that bend the evidence into focus. And it seems to me that that's, uh, we, we all need to be cautious when that's the case. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. McDaniel, for being with us. My pleasure. So, Dr. Keithley, we use this language of culture all the time, where it's whether we're talking about throat culture, whether we're talking about pop culture, whether we're talking about Christ and culture. 
We work here at the Center for Faith and Culture. We talk about this all the time, but what do we mean, Dr. Keithley, by culture? As you point out, we're at the Center for Faith and Culture. And as Christians, we may actually be more comfortable with the term faith than we are with the word culture. Mm. We understand faith to be both a noun and a verb. Faith is, you know, the faith that we hold to is the body of beliefs that Christians affirm. And then faith is is something we exercise. We place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word. So we have a a, a good working understanding of the word faith, but when it comes to culture, uh, it's one of those terms that I think most people have an intuitive idea, but it's it's not really well formed or well thought out. And so I think there's at least four ways that in common conversation we use the word culture. And so if you want me to go through those, we can start. Let's do that. So four ways yeah. that we can, sort of four, four categories that we can begin to situate our thoughts. Yeah, well, the first one would be, you know, just the notion of common culture. That is the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist. Uh, it's the social air that we breathe. It's the milieu in which we live. It's the common ambiance that we all experience. There is a proverb that if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. Now, that, <laughs> that's right. That, that's a Chinese proverb that uh, John Stone Street, uh, I'm, I'm borrowing that from him. David Foster Wallace once gave a, uh, a famous speech uh, in which he asked, does a fish realize what, that water is wet? And, and the point that they were making is that, for the most part, culture is something very unexamined for the a- average person. It's, it's the world in which we live, think, and breathe intuitively without giving it much thought. I, I think I agree with Charles Taylor that we live in a secular age, that our culture is secular. And by that, I mean, and that what he meant, and I agree with him, is that our culture has abandoned any notion of the transcendent. And as a result, uh, we are living at a time in which we are still haunted by the transcendent and we are searching for meaning. And so that would be what we mean by common culture. But there's other meanings too, if you want to talk about Yeah, let's talk through those as well. Yeah, well, think about uh, pop culture in contrast to common culture. A common culture, if common culture is the ocean in which we we live, a pop culture is the wave on top of the ocean. It is, um, uh, it's what presently holds everyone's attention. So like I said, so it's analogous to a wave crossing across the water. So by its very nature, popped culture is inherently transitory and uh, temporary. So pop culture, by definition, then is faddish. Uh, It's trendy. It's fickle. It's typically shallow. However, having said that, uh, it can also be an important expression or indicator of social change or of a social movement. So even though it's, you know, even though it's trendy, it's not insignificant. And so that would be perhaps the way uh, that most people understand culture would be there is common culture, pop culture. Uh, there's another uh, term, uh, way that we usually use the, the notion of culture, and that's high culture. Hmm. Now we're getting to the root meaning of the word because the word culture means cultivation. Hmm. 
And by high culture, we're talking about the deliberate attempt to promote and foster what we consider to be the best in creativity, our beauty, our flourishing, whatever those things, however we understand those things to be. So if pop culture isn't, I'm gonna mix my metaphors. I've been talking about an ocean, now let's switch over. Instead of the uh, wave above the ocean for pop culture, could we think of it as the Taylor above the Swift or the Justin above the Bieber? Is that the kind of, <laughs> is that the kind there, of pop culture there, that you, Yeah, you could go there. To, to, like I said, to just completely mangle uh, uh, metaphors. If pop culture is an untamed wilderness where anything goes, high culture is, is a well-tended garden. In fact, like I said, the word culture comes from cultura, the, the Latin word for agriculture. So uh, I think those are the three common ways that we, we understand the word culture, either as common culture, pop culture, high culture. But I want us uh, to think primarily in terms of a fourth way, and that would be a theological term, or a theological understanding of culture. And a, a theological understanding of culture would be culture is what happens when God's image bearers interact with his creation. Mm -hmm. So when human beings live in the world, the result <laughs> or the product is culture. So from a biblical perspective, we are inherent culture makers. If we're going to talk about culture, we need to think primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in those four terms of what uh, of, of what culture is. That's super helpful, Doc. So these four ways, um, common culture, pop culture, high culture, theological culture, some would even add the category of low culture alongside high culture, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. There's many more directions we could take. I want to ask you this, though. Often in, in classes, especially theology and culture-like classes, I'll define culture to my students very simply as something like this, the ways of creatures in creation. Yeah. And, and by that I mean, and I get very specific with them, by, by creatures, in this, in this context I mean human creatures, so human beings, in God's creation, kind of to your point there at the end on theological culture and the fact that we are called to be culture makers. At the same time, the ways of creatures in creation, it also alludes to the products of culture that transcend even a particular time or space. So it's not just Western culture, it's not just Indian culture, it's not just uh, Asian culture or whatever. It's all over, and, and you can, you're can you able to then kind of go into those times and those places and evaluate, okay, what are the ways of these creatures when it comes to everything in reality? How do they cook? How do they holiday? How do they spend money? How do they think about, what do they think about money? Um, how do they leisure? How do they work? How do they go through all these things and the ways in which they do that? Much of which on the surface, on the skin of it, even if they're Christians in a different context, it may look a little bit different, but they may actually be cultivating, back to that term as you were talking about it, a wise and godly way in God's world. And at the same time, regardless of time and space, there are always, also regardless of location, there are other ways that oppose the ways of God in His world and that produce ways and means and products of culture uh, that are idolatrous and that yeah, are because, harmful. Because so culture is something we do according to our nature. Mm -hmm. And so if there's something wrong with, with, uh, with our makeup and our nature, yeah. then that will be distorted. Birds make nests. Beavers build dams. Humans create culture. Mm. 
uh, and we create culture that is in our image. So let's let's cut to that to that question then. And this is a broad question, and we could we could answer it with respect to any sort of cultural sphere. But uh, how do we interact with culture then? And we could you could make it very specific, but at the same time, it may be very general. How do Christians or how ought Christians yeah, interact yeah. with culture? Well, there, there again, uh, I just gave you four four definitions, broad definitions of culture. Let me let me give you four ways of approaching culture. And, and again, these are not particularly exclusive. I just think that they highlight some of the main ways. Obviously, the first way is the most academic, and that would be cultural anthropology. You find that in um, uh, cultural anthropology being studied in any major university uh, in which it will be where they'll try to describe or interpret or analyze, as you just described, the various similarities and differences of, of human cultures. And Typically, they will understand anthropology in a number of subsets. You know, there's, there's archaeological anthropology, there's linguistic, there's biological anthropology, and then the fourth category is cultural anthropology. Mm. And so they will try to understand um, various human, uh, human cultures, various ethnicities or people groups in the areas that you just mentioned, family, education, power, religion, art, economics. Now, here's where it gets interesting. You know, we're at a seminary, and missiology is an important area of study Mm -hmm. at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, We've been talking about anthropology. Anthropologists and missiologists uh, throughout history have had this sort of love-hate relationship Mm -hmm. where there have been times that one has very obviously depended upon the work of the other and then there's other times where there is almost a hostility between the two disciplines and so that's an interesting uh, fact of the academy so so cultural anthropology would be the most academic way of approaching it Uh, we'll do some of that we are an educational institution we are part of the academy that won't be our primary focus but we'll do some of that Uh, we'll talk about cultural engagement that's, that's been a buzzword for the past, oh, several decades, uh, last 20 to 30 years. It's a word that's almost been overused, but it's still useful because engage means to participate or to become involved in. And so I think at its best, it means being a faithful witness. Cultural engagement means being a faithful witness. At, at its worst, it has descended into cultural warfare, yeah. and, and that's not been very helpful. Or... On one side you have cultural warfare, the other side you have complete capitulation to yeah. the culture. Yeah. We're all familiar with, with uh, Niebuhr's famous taxonomy of, of uh, his book on Christ and culture. Uh, he had Christ against culture, the Christ of culture, Christ above culture. Uh, well, actually, Christ above culture, he kind of, I mean, there were actually, I think, five, but mm-hmm. the last three were just variations on, on <laughs> yeah. the third. So I think it's helpful, maybe a little dated, but it's talking about how we as Christians either do a synthesis or you have there, we live a paradoxical relationship to the culture of the world or we're supposed to be involved in transforming culture. Here's where I think George Eldon Ladd helps us in that he has talked about inaugurated eschatology, uh, how we are to understand our place 
uh, or what is the role of the kingdom of God in the world today. Uh, and, and so I think that presently, Christians should understand themselves as being in exile, that we are standing in the public square. And as such, at times, we are to be a moderating influence. Yet at other times, we are to be a prophetic voice. And this requires uh, wisdom. I think there are some biblical examples that can give us guidance. Uh, I'm thinking, obviously, of people like Daniel, Esther, Joseph, or Nehemiah. Uh, and so these, these biblical persons uh, would be examples of cultural engagement. Mm. So cultural anthropology, cultural engagement. One of the new ways to approach culture is cultural, cultural apologetics. Paul Gould would be uh, a good example of someone who has done uh, quite a bit of writing in this area and thinking. Um, let me give a definition that he provides. He says that whenever he looks at classic uh, apologetics and cultural apologetics, he says, and I'm quoting, the main point of contrast has to do with the kinds of evidence utilized in making a case for Christianity. For the traditional apologist, academic sources such as philosophy, science, and history are prioritized in providing evidence for arguments. But for the cultural apologist, cultural artifacts, illustrations from the world of music, arts, sports, and entertainment, social relations, and politics, these are paramount. And I think that's a very helpful definition and distinction that he makes there in understanding what is meant by this relatively new approach or new field of cultural apologetics. And so I think, I think there's some real value in, uh, in what he's talking about, and it's something that we, in fact, I would argue that that's one of the things we do here at uh, the Bush Center, mm -hmm. is that we do engage in cultural apologetics. But, as you know, I gave three that are very important and significant in terms of definitions, and finally to the fourth, I, I got to the theological definition, I'm going to do that again. You know, I, I'm going to say that, that, that uh, theologically, what I would say that Scripture teaches is that we should be engaged in culture making. Mm. I think someone who has done uh, a, a great deal of work in this area and has got a very helpful book is Andy Crouch. Mm. Uh, Andy Crouch has got a book called Playing God, uh, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It's a provocative title, Playing God. But that's exactly what he argues we ought to be doing. We ought to be playing God. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, uh, he means that we should recognize that we are image bearers, and therefore we are inherent creators. Like I said, uh, culture is something that we simply create. It's what, what humans do. So we're all culture makers. Therefore, all of us has spheres of influence and of power. And so we all possess, to relative degrees, we all possess power. Now, power is indeed dangerous. It's, it's hazardous, uh, it, particularly in a fallen race. And so therefore, we have to, to keep that in mind. But when we submit our respective power structures to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, those spheres of influence can be redeemed. I think uh, building off the theological definition of culture that, that we talked about earlier, Crouch then contends that we should think thoughtfully 
and deliberately, and we should purposefully endeavor to advance the kingdom of God, and by ways, uh, by means of evangelism, uh, vocation, and by promoting human flourishing. Mm -hmm. So uh, I agree, I affirm very strongly uh, his notion of culture making. And so those would be the four uh, main approaches that I, I think are helpful for understanding how do we approach culture. Well, we, uh, we can do it academically, we can do it through engagement, uh, through apologetics, and then by recognizing we are inherent culture makers. I think all four of them are helpful. Doc, can we boil that down then to, especially borrowing from that last point about uh, the, this call, maybe even an imperative to be culture makers. And, and the reality is we're making culture whether we mean to or not. So some of it's just recognizing what's already taking place. Could we boil it down to cultivating the ways of the king in his kingdom? And if so, I want to slide into kind of the next question then, just to bring it home to many of our listeners. They're listening right now on their way home from work or as they're taking the kids to soccer practice or whatever the case is. And they're thinking, I'm not an academic. I don't plan to go back to school, but I do want to take my calling seriously as it relates to culture and engagement and all the rest of it. How, how, how do we kind of bring this home to them? Well, think of what uh, the ancient philosophers used to say. They said uh, one of the most dangerous things is an unexamined life. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the more hazardous things that can happen is for a people to go about developing culture willy-nilly without purposefully mm -hmm. thinking about what they're doing. And if, if that happens, there's an, an incredible amount of power being exercised. Mm -hmm. You say, well, where can you show me examples of where this has been a, a negative thing? All one has to do is look at what we've done to the environment. How in the world did the human race do so much damage to the environment? We didn't have to work at it. We were just thoughtless. We just went about doing whatever we doggone wanted. And, and that's, this is the result. If we're going to advance the kingdom, and if we're going to, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the various areas, it will have to be done on purpose. Yeah. Uh, it will have to be done consciously. It will have to be done deliberately in which, and prayerfully. Lord, what would, what would you have me to do? And when we do that, no matter what sphere of influence we have, and there's no one that has zero influence. Yeah. Some of our yeah. spheres of influence are very small, but they're very intense. Uh, there are people who have broad spheres of influence, but it's, but, but it's not as powerful per person. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone say, well, the only influence I have is with my family. Yeah. Yes, but that level of influence is quite extraordinary yeah. among your children. So yeah, whatever, whatever that circle of influence you have, it, it needs to be done purposely uh, yeah. and intentionally. That's super helpful. And, and I think you're right about that. To begin with, uh, even maybe hearing a podcast like this and just thinking, well, the first thing I can do is just take it seriously. And yeah. to begin to be more aware of the ways that I'm cultivating in my home, in my work, in my private life, my public life, all the rest, and thinking about advancing the ways of the king in his kingdom. What does the way of Christ look like in all of these different areas of my life? Um, that's incredibly helpful. And I think about even something that you mentioned earlier, Paul in Ephesians, telling us to, as you were talking about Andy Crouch playing God, I was, I was hearing 
Paul saying in Ephesians, we imitate, he tells us, imitate God, which that, and then he continues on. That's almost a side point. And then he continues on uh, kind of telling us how to do that. But I have a hard time getting past that point. Imitate God. Yeah. And we get to do that as we engage with his world and do so faithfully. And in engaging with the world, let's remember the distinction between the church and the kingdom. I think that the church is contained within the kingdom. But the kingdom of God extends beyond the church. Yeah. The church is the community of faith. But we are, as members of the family of God, as members of his body, the church, we go out into the various arenas in which God has called us. Now we're doing kingdom work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in, in this kingdom work, we are called uh, to be faithful witnesses, as I said, yeah. you, you know, now, now we're in alien territory, but that doesn't mean we're not called to be there. Yeah, uh, and and we are called to a very deliberate work while we're there. So let me let me ask you a clarifying question on that. So you're saying the stay-at-home mom who is cultivating the ways of Christ in her home with her three kids, not a massive audience, but a very intentional and purposeful one, as you mentioned, the degree to which she is doing that faithfully as unto the Lord, she is doing kingdom work. Without a doubt, and I, I do not know and do not even dare to venture a guess who it is that I know or you know personally who is the most faithful in doing kingdom work. Who is going to hear when they stand before Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, uh, you know, uh, I think we may end up being surprised uh, who it is that the Lord considered to be to be the the best kingdom worker. Mm. Uh, so yes, to answer your question, uh, each and every one of us have the opportunity to serve the Lord faithfully uh, in his kingdom, mm. regardless of how broad or small our sphere of influence is. That's very helpful. Thank you, Dr. Keithley. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf. This is a segment in which professors at Southeastern Seminary give you a peek into what they are reading. Today we're honored to have Dr. Mark Lederbach with us. Dr. Lederbach, what's on your bookshelf? Let me just give two quick thoughts on this. I always have on my bookshelf to pull off every day, other than my Bible, is my Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. I read it to uh, help me to de-stress and see the world more Christianly. That's a conversation all in and of itself that we could get into. But what I'm reading that's been really provocative for me in my, my personal devotional life is Michael Reeves' book, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord? This is the same author who wrote the book Delighting in the Trinity, which is a must-read as well. And I'm really enjoying uh, this whole concept of the fear of the Lord and how it adds to our proper worship. Those are great recommendations. You've been listening to Christ and Culture. If you enjoy what you've heard, Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcast or share the episode with a friend. We'll see you next time.